we'll ask the panel for any responses to uh, Tim's, the Tim's paper. Uh, the, there's Herb, Herb London and then Roger Kimball. Herb. Well, I, I started to uh, say something about the paradox of the paradox, and so let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Tim, I, I, I very much appreciate your interesting paper, but you made the point that the left-wing academics who pretty much control the academy are there in part because of a distance from market pressure. I think that's true in part, but I want to offer another hypothesis for you to consider. If you look at the academics, you find that there's a dramatic difference between those in sociology, critical theory, psychology, and those who are in engineering and mathematics. People who are in empirical disciplines tend very much to be conservatives. If you go to engineering departments in the United States, it's quite remarkable the extent to which engineers tend to embrace a rather conservative view of the world, as opposed to sociology departments or English departments, as you've noted. And I think that there's a difference between those who are engaged in theoretical disciplines, or what might be described as soft disciplines, and those that are engaged in hard disciplines, or what may be described as empirical disciplines. I wonder if you would consider that as an alternative to the view that you've, uh, you've expressed. Don't disagree at all, and I, and I, I, actually, I think I said in, in my, in my um, sorry, I didn't. I don't disagree at all. I, I think what I said in my, in my talk was that you've got this contrast between the empirical is a much better way of putting it, actually, um, the empirical and numerate um, disciplines. I focus on numeracy in mathematics, but uh, and it's it's it, this empirical thing. Um, I would just, uh, and yes, and it, it, it is the non-empirical, the, the, um, the wordy, if you like. Um, and this takes, I mean, it rather mock it that um, if you use long words and difficult sentences, you're being clever. And of course, that's where all these French guys got caught up. In. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and allowing Chokov to come in and make, make complete fun of them. Um, and um, I don't agree at all. Uh, so I hope we disagree. Um, okay, uh, we've got Roger. I just very briefly, uh, Tim. One is I, I want to just make it clear. I'm not sure um, everyone in the audience, um, uh, since they've led blameless lives, I'm not sure that they've been exposed to Richard Rorty, and that Rorty's description of the this deconstructive impulse in literature was meant as praise. I mean, he liked it, you know, the fact. So uh, the second thing is just to try to introduce, uh, reintroduce the, uh, the appropriate element of gloom. Um, it, uh, I think, you know, you were right that in, you know, by the uh, 1980s, um, the Chicago School, Milton Friedman, they, they won. They had won the argument. Every, you know, everybody except for some academics agreed with them. I, th I sort of sense a movement away from that now. I think that there have been um, uh, many signs that the, the dominance of the Chicago School in economics um, is at least being seriously challenged. Uh, I'm not saying that it is intellectually a successful challenge, but I think it might politically be a successful challenge. Um, I'd, be, I'd be curious, actually, uh, Jim Pearson, uh, had, had some thoughts on that. I wonder, Jim, if you uh, remember the, the there was some some issue about Friedman and, and the University of Chicago, and there, there some left wing group wanted to do something. Do you remember what that was? A, about? Well, there, uh, about a year ago, they wanted to, and that, they eventually did put together a research institute named after Milton Friedman, 
However, there is a group on the faculty that said they should not do this because, and this is very silly, they said, if we let them do that, then everybody outside the university will think we agree with them and endorse Milton Friedman's idea. So uh, I guess the, the idea is my neighbor is not allowed to say anything that disagrees with me because if he does, <laughs> then the whole world will think that I endorse that. So, but you get this all over the university. Scalia, uh, Justice Scalia was going to speak at uh, Amherst College a couple of years ago, and the chairman of the government department said he couldn't speak because if they allowed him to speak, the wider world would think that everyone at Amherst agrees with Scalia. So uh, that's, that's kind of the argument they make uh, to keep people like that out. But, and that's what they did with Milton Friedman. I was going to say that Hayek says on the road to serfdom that early in the 19th century, intellectuals were captivated with the idea of liberty. I think he's talking about Shelley and others, the authors of our Constitution. But by about the middle of the century and onward, they became captivated by German ideas. And by this, he meant Hegel and historicism and Marx, obviously, and then the social sciences of uh, Weber and Mannheim. And he, uh, writing in the 1940s, didn't then know about the Frankfurt School and what would happen uh, with the Frankfurt School and bringing along uh, Craig all these critical studies and deconstruction and so on. But the American university was, was built up in the late 19th century on the basis of the German university. And the idea was that the professor has to be totally free to discover truth without interference from state or church. And in other words, the professor is an entirely free agent, set free, free agent, set free to discover the truth. And that leads to all these things like uh, tenure and academic freedom and faculty governance and all the rest. So <clears throat> I guess the point I would make is that the uh, kind of the left-wing bias of the academy uh, that is clearly apparent is arises partly from the structure of the university uh, I just described, and maybe also from this German inheritance that seems to have taken over the academy. Um, I'm not sure if that's entirely valid, but, the, but the, the disciplines that are most influenced by the British Enlightenment, namely economics and to some extent political science, are what we would say call the most conservative elements of the academy. Those elements that are most influenced by these other things, sociology, English literature, anthropology, you keep going. History, yes, uh, uh, are more, more left-wing. Okay, now Charles Murray, David Price-Jones, and then Daniel Johnson. Charles. Well, when he started talking about IQ, I said, I know something about this. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I will report very briefly that it's not really a paradox, uh, that uh, you draw off the uh, intellectuals that you were talking about from a certain stratum of IQ, which is probably in the region of above 120 on up. But there are lots of different groups that are just as smart. It just is that you have a self-selection process, so you have some people in there uh, who, are, who are bright, but it's not that being bright makes you uh, daffy. Um, the, the, the larger point I'd like to make is that we are about to witness, we are in the process of witnessing a very interesting interaction between what goes on in universities and the kind of uh, orthodoxies that, that you were talking about. And that is that the neuroscientists and the geneticists are about to make huge problems 
uh, for, the, uh, for the left. I've written about this elsewhere, but I'll just say it very briefly. A lot of the left's uh, uh, premises in the last 30 years have been, first, equality, that if you have a fair society that uh, every group will have the same mean income and have the same occupational distribution, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the other one has been that you can have big effects on human beings if you have the right social policy interventions. And uh, the, the, the geneticists and the neuroscientists are about to throw both of those premises into a cocked hat and do so so decisively that it, there will no longer be two sides. Uh, the, 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 the whole thing about gender differences uh, th that go to explanations for why you don't have as many women engineers as you do have men engineers and the rest of it, all the things that got Summers so, so much trouble, already those are empirically not really seriously argued. I mean, there's only one side that is having a lot of data behind it, and, and that's just going to go on within the next few years. I'm not talking about decades. And in terms of the plasticity of human nature, the geneticists are just every day coming up in the, with the ways in which human beings are tightly constrained uh, by, by genetics and the ability, and by the way, human nature, as we are discovering it to be, is pretty much the same way that uh, thoughtful observers are thought it was for thousands of years. So there is going to be a very interesting interaction between the orthodoxies of the political left that are manifested in the universities and what the scientists in the universities are discovering. And whereas the, the soft science people are going to be able to ignore it for a while, and the humanities people will try to ignore it for a while, sooner or later, that is going to fundamentally uh, change what goes on within the political left in the universities. How exactly it will change it, that's beyond me. David. Well, I'm going to come out of my corner, and you'll see what an unworthy and frivolous person I am. <laughs> when Jeremy was giving us his very eloquent uh, discussion of the role of the state and the difference between strong government and weak government, I was reminded irresistibly of the Caliph Mamun, one of the prophet's successors, the f one of the four rightly guided caliphs, who said, they all came to a sticky end, he too, he said, happy is the man who knows not me and whom I know not. And that seems to me to be about my political position. I don't want to know about these people. To those who go into politics seem to me to be sociopaths or psychopaths. <laughs> There's something, something deranged with a lot of them. I've never met a normal politician, and I've never listened to anyone who was remotely like a normal person in the House of Commons, and I guess it's the same here. I take the Auburn War view that they're all um, uh, really a bunch of people who are better locked up. <laughs> well, think of the damage they do. Now, when Tim was telling us about intellectuals, I was reminded, really, that the obvious way for me to escape, you know, I'm some kind of Tory anarchist. And the way for me to escape is into the arts and into, into the intellectual life. But the next thing I know, I shall be lined up next to Harold Pinter and Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> I've been writing lately about why British people take up causes. And it, it, it's, it's, plain, really, it's plain that for the last 200 years, irrational 
sentiments have been governing the country. And they only got away with it because historical circumstances meant that Britain at that time was powerful. Communism was the most obviously irrational movement that there has been, I think, ever. You have to go back to the 16th century, the, the millenarians and people like that, to, to find such crazy beliefs. Now, here's Tim Tsuliadis wrote a book the other day about Americans and British people who went to the Soviet Union between 1918 and 1939. Two came back. There were about 5,000. Two came back at the end of 20 years in Gulag, but the others had all been killed. Um, there was one lucky escape. And he was a man who came from the South. He came, I, th I think, from South Carolina. And he was working in a factory alongside another American in about 1928. And he makes a racist remark, because the other American he was working was a black man. He's immediately denounced. He's reported. He's popped in front of a tribunal and sent home to the United States. <laughs> he survived. The black man goes to Gulag and doesn't survive. So it seems to me that the last two speakers were really telling us something about the nature of happiness and the efforts that mankind, that's us, have made to have some kind of workable society. And I put it to you that there are two very clever men who are trying to make something straight out of crooked irrationality. And it can't be done. Daniel. Right, well, uh, <laughs> with that warning, um, I'm, I, 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 I just wanted to uh, throw in a few examples of how quite extraordinary I was just thinking of all the people in this, in, on, the, on this panel. I can't speak about all the people in the room, but I suspect it's true of most of you as well. How few of us have managed to make a career. We're all here intellectuals in one, by some definition or another, and yet hardly any of us here uh, has actually uh, been able to make a career in the academic world in the narrow sense. We've all had, I, I, I accept Herb, who's, who's uh, I know, professor at NYU, it's a private university, maybe a bit of an exception. But, but most of us here, uh, broadly um, right of centre, uh, writers and intellectuals, uh, we've had to make our way outside uh, the academy. And this is true, too, of most of the other people I can think of in my life who I've really respected, who've influenced me, who've done original work. Um, I, I mean, one of them, uh, Amity Schles, who I was talking to the other day, told me a horrific tale of how her book, uh, The Forgotten Man, uh, a brilliantly original account of the Great Depression, uh, how the academic establishment here in America tried to kill that book, uh, and kill her, effectively, get her fired, for example, from the... Uh, Council for Foreign Relations, where she has a niche. Um, uh, people like Paul Krugman, who you mentioned, um, went to enormous lengths uh, to destroy her. Uh, but to her enormous satisfaction, their books, uh, the other uh, books about the Great Depression, have sold very few copies. Hers has sold a quarter of a million. And as a result, it's become so influential that it's now being taught, even in Harvard. 
Um, so to her great satisfaction, uh, she survived that. But I mean, that's just one small example of the way in which uh, people of our broad political outlook disposition uh, are excluded. Um, I think again of the great Leszek Kolakowski. He's perhaps a little bit of an exception because he, he was a fellow of all souls in Oxford. But only after he tried, after he was kicked out of Poland, uh, he went to Berkeley and was horrified to find that all the ideas he thought he was escaping from <laughs> Poland were, were there on the streets of Berkeley. This is 1968, you know. Um, and, um, and he found a little niche in, in Oxford only, I suspect, because they thought in Oxford he was still a Marxist. <laughs> little did they realise that what he was actually going to do was produce the greatest demolition of Marxist thought uh, ever seen. And I can remember after that book appeared, Main Currents of Marxism, talking to uh, uh, a great uh, figure of, of uh, the academic uh, world, George Steiner, uh, about it. Uh, and George speaking with such contempt, you know, how can anybody take that book seriously? You know, how dare you write about the great Georg Lukács and the Frankfurt School in this, in this uh, critical way? Um, so... Um, but, uh, and, I mean, I think of my own father, uh, who uh, I mean, never wanted to be an academic, but uh, that's fine, you know, he, it's not as though he was excluded. But, but the fact that no academics will ever even review his books, uh, with, you know, a few notable exceptions, mainly here in this country, uh, the fact that uh, they've never given him so much as, you know, the most measly little bit of recognition or honour or anything of that kind, I mean, here, you know, the president gave him the presidential medal. Uh, that was wonderful. But, uh, you know, this is a man who's written nearly 50 books, you know, huge histories, uh, extremely scholarly, actually, of, um, on big subjects, uh, completely blanked by the academic world. There is something deeply rotten about our academic system. Now, Jeremy is nodding, even though he is the, the, the real exception that proves the rule on this panel, you know, an active academic working in a mainstream university teaching all the time. I'd love to hear your views about this. What did you uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but well, I, I'm but I, I'm horrified to be thought of as right of centre. I'm right wing. But anyway, I, I've gone on long enough, but uh, I, mean, I could mention, you know, people like Norman Podhoritz, um, all sorts of, uh, of, 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 of people who um, be, be um, Himmelfarb, um, you know, one of the, one of the finest uh, scholars uh, alive um, has operated almost entirely outside the academic world. Uh, so that's um, not true. Uh, B was at the graduate school of the City University for twenty-five years. Well, uh, I beg your pardon. Okay, um, but uh, but she was she's still not a typical uh, a typical academic. Um, I anyway. think Daniel's right that it is. Ex there are always one or two exceptions you can find, but the norm is not only that. Um, um, opinions that are not regarded as normal are will keep you out of the system. If you do hold them, you won't get promoted. Um, but also, and I think what you said about your father was very eloquent, it's when the academic community, and I think I'm afraid the same thing is true in, in the United States as in Britain, when it comes to look at what is outside 
itself, when it looks at journals or conferences or books, it only validates what, what fills in with, the, with their prejudices. And what is really sickening to my mind, and I tell you what I think is completely deplorable, is that academics claim a special privilege for themselves on the basis that they are meritocratic, so they say, and that they do not act that way. If academics were to say we are a business or we're a group or we are a you know, club and we are going to act like a club, that would be one thing. We could all deplore it, we would know what they were doing, but at least they'd be being honest. What I find really dis- disreputable is that they claim a special privilege on the idea that uniquely they are, are, um, uniquely they are meritocratic, which is rubbish, bogus and also very dishonest. I think you'd also find that the tenure system is a way of excluding a great many people. And so it has become a device for keeping people out. As a consequence, what you find is that the academic system is entirely political. It's not at all coincidental that when Woodrow Wilson, who was the president of Princeton, decided to run for governor of New Jersey, he was asked by a reporter, why would you leave this wonderful position of Prince at Princeton to run for governor, he said, I wanted to get out of politics. <laughs> uh, thank, thanks for that. we better move on. Uh, any, any more thoughts, Tim? Okay, well, very quickly, um, can I just first say, say that um, the, these remarks about university departments and academics are, are true of economics as well, and they're particularly true since it's my subject. Uh, I, I know about it, of monetary economics. And... Um, the decline in interest in money and banking and what I'd regard as traditional monetary economics um, in the sort of English-speaking world uh, in the last 20, 30 years has been frightening. And Chicago is actually rather interesting in this context because I would say that it's actually been a leader in this tendency. Um, that, that's a, I won't go into the reasons for that. Um, and so the result is that, um, just to get clear what's going on just at the moment in the United States, as I said, the quantity of money actually has been falling uh, in the last few months. The quantity of money, I really mean what Milton Friedman meant by that, church to use M2, or um, he really focused on M2. It's actually been going down after the worst recession, after the worst recession since the 1930s. And actually, I, I, I look at this all the time. I spend my, and I, I, I can't, you know, I, I get some of this into the newspapers and so on, but it's a terrible battle. Anyway, can I also just say finally that um, I think in America that um, there has now been a, uh, a flourishing of, um, you know, the right-wing intellectual, intellectuals outside academic um, it's think tanks, it's media, it, it's, it's a very big um, group of people who really can just justify their work by selling books, articles and so on to a very wealthy society. Uh, and so to some extent that's a very important counterweight. Um, and can I just say America in that sense is much more strongly placed than any European society to resist some of these tendencies, intellectually I mean. Before we move on, can, can you just briefly say why the falling of M2, what it means? What- well, okay. Um, the, M2 is just really all the total of bank deposits. Um, if you're running a business and the bank deposit's going down, you have to cut investment or fire some staff or something just to keep the business ticking over, maybe to sell an asset. And so that's why when you had in America between 29 and 33 an almost 40% fall in the quantity of bank deposits, really, as bank deposits, what most money was, you had this terrible uh, depression. Um, and so what Friedman advocated was just steady growth of the quantity of money um, at around about, say, 5% a year. 
Um, in 2006, in your great country, you had 20% growth of, um, in effect, what Friedman would have followed. You had 20% growth of, um, this is when actually Bernanke had scrapped the M3 measure of money. They stopped looking at it. You can put it together after the event. Uh, it then fell, went up 20% in 2006. In the middle of 2008, it stopped growing altogether. It surged late 2008. And then since January, it's been flat. The last two couple of months falling. It is a story of gross incompetence, instability, and totally ignoring uh, Milton Friedman's lessons. Totally ignoring it. Thank, uh, th thanks for that. Uh, we better move on to our last paper, uh, Lionel Shriver on the criminalization of making money. Lionel. Yes. Given the uh, makeup of this panel, I figure there are a few women in the audience who are a little relieved to discover that Lionel is a girl. <laughs> <laughs> you might also be relieved, uh, given the uh, remarkable stamina of this audience, that my remarks are written out and I have read through them and they time at 20 minutes and 39 seconds. <laughs> so if you can hold on, that'll take us just a little past 4.30. Now on the face of it, I don't really belong here this afternoon. I'm a novelist. So you'll forgive me if my approach to my topic today is narrative and focused on my bread and butter, emotion. For I believe that money is an enormously emotional subject, one underexplored in serious fiction. Indeed, my upcoming novel is described in HarperCollins' spring catalog as about illness, death, and money. <laughs> it's considered unseemly to discuss one's personal finances in public, but I'm not very polite. Furthermore, we hear a great deal about the unquestionably sympathetic travails of the poor. But the anxieties of, who, of people who make money go largely unexpressed. If you earn anything, you're not supposed to complain, but to feel fortunate or even sheepish, especially in a recession. But I think it's time for the people who actually keep Western state coffers afloat to share their anxieties because that's what making money in today's climate has become, an anxiety. Until me, my late 40s, I earned very little income, and I'm not complaining. I was writing books, which was what I wanted to do, and though they didn't sell very many copies, they at least made it into print. The modest taxes I paid in those days may have covered the cost of paving the roads on which I rode by bicycle, and of paying the police to give me tickets for running lights. I didn't take government handouts. So I fancied that I paid for the communal price of my existence, although my tiny taxes certainly didn't cover the cost of any wars or of bloated bureaucracies like the Department of Housing and Urban Development. My tax returns were simple, and so long, I, uh, so long as I had paid my rent for the month, I was free to think about other things besides money. In retrospect, despite a few literary frustrations, those were contented years. But then I had one novel take off commercially, 
Now, authors don't rake in nearly as much in royalties as most people imagine. My income has never remotely approached the scale of bonuses in banking. Nevertheless, in 2007, I enjoyed, though I don't believe that's the right word, a single windfall year. It seemed that everything remunerative that had ever happened to me landed within 12 short months. <laughs> Given that this sudden embarrassment of riches was really the fruit of a lifetime career in fiction writing, the experience of that windfall should have been one of building glee, a sense of achievement. Instead, I became choked by a rising dread. Every time another payment came in for a translation contract, a film option, I groaned. Moreover, when a check arrived during the latter part of that year, I no longer regarded it as my money. That's because the government didn't regard it as my money either. <laughs> Being a low earner had been relaxing. I didn't attract attention. The chances of my being audited were fairly low because even governments have registered that you can't get blood from a stone. But when my earnings suddenly spiked, I felt as if I were in an African game park in the days when they were still full of lions. And I'd done what the wardens always warn you not to. I'd got out of the car. <laughs> Suddenly worth more than a grisly mouthful for tax authorities, I was fair game. Doubling my anxiety, I happened to live most of the year in the UK, where I also pay taxes. Although the US demands that even non-resident Americans declare their worldwide income to the federal government, <coughs> the US is one of only four countries to have such a requirement, another of which is Eritrea. <laughs> Despite the popularity of the term, for law-abiding Americans, there is no such thing as a tax haven. Even if Americans move to another country with more reasonable tax rates, Americans have to pay the shortfall to the feds. The only legal manner in which I could shelter any of my income from the IRS is to disavow my citizenship and burn my passport. <laughs> Thus, I felt hot breath panting from both sides of the Atlantic. Oh, sure, I was a good little camper. And that year, I ponied up to the American and British governments a, an enormous proportion of my lifetime earnings. For someone in my profession, America's elimination of income averaging has been disastrous. I believe my emotional experience of that year is politically and economically significant. I don't remember it fondly. I was fearful. I felt stopped. I felt strangely guilty, as if I'd done something wrong. And I don't think that's due to my Presbyterian upbringing. <laughs> I felt guilty because the experience of entering a top tax bracket is of being punished. Once I wrote a six-figure check to the U.S. Treasury, I also felt furious. I felt robbed. I felt taken advantage of. 
in having my ship come in only to have the vessel boarded by pirates from the IRS. <laughs> well, entrepreneurs in America doing well financially is a little like sailing the coast of Somalia. <laughs> I felt overwhelmingly like a sucker. These are the kinds of feelings that no one in upper tax brackets will talk about in public. Indeed, I went through an abrupt paradigm shift. When I was skint, I naturally felt sorry for the impoverished. For the first time in 2007, I felt just a little bit of sympathy for the rich. If I'm to continue to overshare, <laughs> in 2008, my income plummeted. And this year, my income has dived even lower. I am much happier. <laughs> I am much more relaxed. I'd be even more relaxed if I made less money still. Unfortunately, I have marked myself as governmental prey for life. The IRS casts a suspicious eye on anyone who makes less money this year than the year before, especially a lot less. Indeed, in expecting the self-employed to forfeit not 100%, but 110% of their previous year's liability in estimated taxes, the IRS is eternally optimistic on your account. <laughs> Apparently, the one thing about my returns, likely to select them for scrutiny, read persecution is the alarming contrast between subsequent returns and my windfall years. In terms of pure safety, protection from bureaucratic and legal harassment, I'd have been better off never having got out of my car in the game park. For the punishment, you see, continues. Since the worldwide economic decline of 2008 and the astronomical deficits run up by both the US and the UK, the degree to which earning any money at all in either country simply marks you as a target has skyrocketed. Governments are desperate. These are very hungry lions. The only sure protection against these animals is to be too scrawny to be worth the bother of hunting down. Worse, well-deserved public outrage over bank bailouts, welfare for the super wealthy, and scandals like Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme or Fred Goodwin's notorious 700,000-pound annual pension as reward for almost single-handedly imploding the Royal Bank of Scotland have helped to stigmatize wealth itself. The default assumption now runs that all gains are ill-gotten the public seems underaware that not everyone with a little income is a banker, that not everyone accumulates wealth by stealing or dodgy wheeler dealering, that there might be such a thing as someone who works hard and honestly doing something well. Further, both the British and American governments punish hard work as opposed to passive raking it in by taxing earned income far more viciously than capital gains which is socially and morally perverse. Earning money is fined. Experientially, earning money is a crime. 
One of the most distressing results of the so-called progressive tax regimes, now standard in the West, is the way that they cleave citizenries into two camps, the takers and the taken. Client citizens look to government to solve problems and to give them money. They get irate when their problems are not solved well or when they're not given enough money. To the involuntary patrons on whom the state depends for its very existence, government is overwhelmingly a predator. Government creates problems and takes money. Politically and culturally, this division is poisonous. Folks at the bottom grow passive, and since no set of services or subsidies is ever enough, they get resentful. Having difficulty pointing to many real benefits that accrue to them from their prodigious taxes, since the more you pay, the less you receive in return, high earners get resentful too. So polarized, neither camp enjoys any real sense of community, and everyone is pissed off. <laughs> Moreover, client citizens, which include uh, public employees and contract workers for the state, never seem to exhibit any consciousness that what they get from government is actually confiscated from their neighbors, that in a fiscal sense, Government is merely a shell company, a clearinghouse. In fact, since it doesn't generate any wealth itself, government as a fiscal entity is a myth like the Easter Bunny. It's the dependent class's imaginary friend. <laughs> were, you, were you to moot the notion that recipients of state largesse should be grateful to their real benefactors, those evil rich people, you would be pilloried. Any suggestion that lower income citizens or the public service sector should be thankful to the better off is anathema. I certainly felt no trace of gratitude toward high earners when I was scraping. Yet by 2005, the top 1% was paying nearly 40% of total US income tax receipts, a disproportion that has steadily risen since the mid 1980s. Now that I myself have abdicated what is to at least me a lot of money to people I don't know, I sure haven't received any thank you notes. <laughs> Instead, I'm left with the impression that I'm the one who should be grateful, that I have anything left. Now that wealth has been demonized by a handful of irresponsible financiers and con artists like Madoff, the rich, are like smokers, one of those groups to whose defense no one dares to rise. The fact that a single packet of cigarettes in New York City right now costs $10 sets an ominous precedent. Well over half that price is taxes, and nothing stops that pack of Marlboros from costing $100 tomorrow, for sin taxes are potentially infinite, and wealth is now a sin. According to the polls this spring, two-thirds of the British public were perfectly happy with Gordon Brown's new 50% top tax bracket, since it didn't apply to them. Were that number to rise to pre-Thatcher levels of more like 
most of the British would be vengefully delighted. By contrast, in the back of their minds, even Americans of the lowliest economic station are convinced that someday they too will be rich, which keeps some modest check on confiscatory tax policies in the U.S. at the upper end. Nevertheless, the proposal in Congress this summer to help finance health reform by bringing in a new 3% health surcharge for anyone earning over a million dollars a year, a poorly disguised euphemism for yet another top tax bracket, met little popular resistance. These are the same bills that provide no health services and no health insurance subsidies for the population that they would soak. Pay more, get nothing. In the continental European model, taxes are exorbitant, but at least the entire citizenry benefits from social services. Paid maternity and paternity leave, preschool and after-school child care, nursing home care and assisted living for the elderly, health care most conspicuously. Yet the American model, which with the exception of the UK's National Health Service, Britain's closely resembles, tax policy is purely redistributive. Pay more, get nothing. Pay even more, still get nothing, eventually pushes the sleepiest and most biddable of the well-heeled to rebel. The drive to cheat or simply to leave becomes overpowering. Little wonder that Obama and Brown have been beavering to lift the lid on offshore bank accounts to ensure that there is nowhere to go. It's always assumed that greedy rich people will keep toiling away even if they only keep 10 cents on the dollar because they're so grasping that they'll do anything for so much as a dime. Thus high tax rates do not discourage productivity or entrepreneurship. I think that assumption is open to question and not only in the top tax bracket. Take a look at what happens in both the US and the UK when you get old and infirm. The state will pick up the tab for nursing home care, but only if you failed to save for your retirement years yourself. That is, only if you're destitute. If you've worked all your life and put together a reasonable pension, bought your own home and paid off your mortgage and, mine, paid hefty taxes the meantime. You're expected to exhaust all of your assets, including selling your home and spending down the proceeds. Then the state will pay your nursing home fees and not before. Since in both countries, full-time private nursing home care can run to about $100,000 a year, it's more than likely that this expense will utterly deplete a lifetime savings, leaving nothing for children to inherit. So what? is the point. Why not spend it all or earn nothing to, to begin with when the results in old age are the same? <laughs> Most of all this the greedy will keep working for peanuts theory doesn't take into account the emotional experience of losing half or more of what you earn. In an environment of state fiscal desperation where any considerable income marks you as a target, Earning money instills not satisfaction, but fear. In a cultural environment where wealth is suspect and is assumed to have been acquired through shady means, high earners feel criminalized, a sensation bolstered by punitive tax regimes. Nobody likes to be taken. 
So when you put in long hours, year after year, only to have the proceeds of your labor donated to strangers, you feel like a chump. On top of that, nobody thanks you. To the contrary, the rhetoric of patrician leaders like Gordon Brown suggests that your earnings are theirs to begin with and they will let you have some of it back, but only if you're very good. High earners had reason to be especially insulted by Brown's explanation this spring of why he was raising the top UK tax rate to 50%. He claimed, of course, that the wealthy have to do their fair share. To the contrary, the wealthy have to do their unfair share. Western polities are mindlessly inured to progressive tax regimes. Thus, it routinely escapes public notice that for some able-bodied workers to pay 10 to 20% of their income to the state or nothing at all, and for others to pay 50% doesn't on the face of it represent any common sense version of justice. Then again, for Gordon to get on TV and announce that it was one more, it was time for the well-off once again to do their unfair share wouldn't go down so well on the BBC. I can personally vouch for the fact that even at my currently modest income levels, I'm disinclined to accept lucrative journalistic assignments unless I happen to be intent on putting a point across. I won't accept a job for money alone. Why should I hunch over my computer all day when nearly half the fee goes to somebody else? In fact, since I have a childish streak a mile wide, high tax rates inspire spite. No, I won't work for the state. No, I won't accept that assignment. I don't feel like it. What I feel like is catching up on desperate housewives. With that polite coyness that attends private fiscal matters, we don't hear this very often, but surely earning money should be a pleasure. In fact, it's an underrated pleasure, one inherently far more gratifying than going on a spending spree at Macy's. Monetary remuneration means you've done something that other people value. Yet in a predatory tax environment, we've taken all the fun out of that check in the mail. Is this in the larger social interest? While governments design ever more top-heavy tax regimes to pay down today's unsustainable deficits, they fortify a giant moral hazard. Low income is rewarded. If you're poor in America, medical care is free, and you'll be taken care of in your old age for nothing. For the middle class and upwards, Medical bills are the leading cause of bankruptcy, and you'll eat up the fruit of a lifetime's toil before Medicaid will pick up your nursing home tab. Higher income is overtly penalized, and not only with punitive tax rates, but with paperwork. The US federal tax return I just filed for 2008 was an inch thick. So I have to hire accountants whose fees amount to more taxes. Indeed, escaping the unreasonable burden of filing multiple returns, paying two sets of estimated taxes, and conforming to the complex, conflicting tax codes of two different countries, none of that my idea of a good time. 
may be the prospect that most tempts me to leave the UK. For this isn't purely about economics. It's about politics. When a vast proportion of your earnings is commandeered, you're not free. When you live in fear of the IRS or of Saddam Hussein, it doesn't matter. You're not free. When your time is colonized by mind-numbing mandatory paperwork, you're not free. Now, obviously, losing a job or a home to foreclosure is incomparably more anguishing than preyed upon prosperity. And don't for a moment imagine that I speak to you today out of self-pity. Anyone relatively secure in these parlous times is lucky. Yet the negative emotions I experienced during that one windfall year, from paranoia to suppressed fury, cannot be exclusive to me. In the coming years, with the Bush tax cuts about to expire in the US and Gordon's queer idea of fair dominating in the UK, these emotions and the commensurate, perfectly rational disinclination to work hard for little in return will grow only more intense. Writ large, the feelings I describe demoralize a country's productive citizens and enervate its economy. Earning money out on the veldt, within sniffing distance of the rapacious, starving lions of the state, is increasingly joyless. These days, the less I make, the happier, happier I am. The more I make, the more I feel frightened, guilty, resentful, helpless, oppressed, humiliated, and stupid. <laughs> Thank you. Have you considered running for office? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm a little too afraid that according to this pa panel, that means I'll be locked up. <laughs> Rosie, you had some comments? Oh, just right, time is, is passing. Very, very briefly, I want to thank Lionel for uh, boosting up the level of gloom even higher than <laughs> And uh, to assure, as Delmore Schwartz said, even paranoids have enemies. So, it's, you know. But, you know, Samuel Johnson said that, uh, I think it was Samuel Johnson, that, uh, you know, a man was never so innocently employed when making money, but that was a long time ago. Just to give you a little more ammunition, it's not only that the, the top 1% pay almost 40%, the top 5% pay 60%. Yeah, it gets worse and worse. And, and you know, uh, of course, the, um, all these low wage earners are happy to have your taxes increased because in this country, nearly 44% of people who file tax returns pay no income tax at all, none. They have no stake in the system whatsoever. It's very similar in, in the UK. Um, and you know, there are proposals in uh, Congress now to, to slap a 5.4% surcharge tax on incomes over, I forget what it is, $100 a year or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, that's what this health surcharge is all about. They're bringing in, possibly bringing in 3% more at over a million dollars. And, and that's, I mean, one, one of the problems with the progressive tax structure in a democracy is that it is theoretically possible for 51% of the population to say to the other 49%, we want your money, and they can take it. Yeah. I, I think Ma Michael Fiedak should say something. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't have much time left, but are there any thoughts from anyone else on the panel? That was great.
That's wonderful. That's a nice thought. The, the, only, the, only, the only editorial comment I'd make is that you referred once to your suppressed fury, and I said, she didn't need that adjective. <laughs> 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 I'd like to point out that the tax rate in Britain is also higher than 50% once you include national insurance, which is over another oh. 10%. Yeah. Oh, so once you throw everything in, yeah. it's much higher than yeah. 50%. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, all the stealth taxes, the... Yeah. the um, Stamp duty nonsense. Uh, yeah, you can't do any. But, I mean, you can't. You can't cross the street in Britain without paying more tax. National insurance is in effect an extra form of income tax. So, so that in practical terms, when you have a fifty percent rate, you're actually getting a sixty-two percent rate. And you might put that if you're writing an article for an American audience, you might put that in because otherwise they're going to think, look at fifty percent and think, well, that's think it's fifty percent. Well, that's yeah, like yeah. actually, I, I find the same disconnect um, talking to Europeans about American tax rates because um, uh, Europeans make the mistake of looking at the federal structure if they, if they know anything about taxes in the U.S. at all. And they think that's our taxes. No, 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 no. Because then you've got state and local on top of that, which in New York State is, uh, in New York City is now 10%. So you add 10% on top of that and then there's Social Security. Which, uh, for example, if, uh, if you're self-employed, you have to pay uh, 14%. 14%. Yeah, that up, that's 68% of your income. So that, you know, that the top tax bracket being 35%, that's starting at 35. You know, and, and we're taking a look at, at bringing it closer to, to 40 again. Jim. <laughs> Lionel mentioned the public service workers. The public employee unions in the United States are the most powerful political force in the country. <laughs> uh, they're the most powerful political force in every state, just about, and at the national level and they're the backbone of the Democratic Party. And they keep this whole system churning. Uh, more expenditures, more services, more programs, and more taxes. Well, I'm of the view that this is an exclusively <coughs> a problem um, of the United States or Britain. I, I think that it is in the nature of government to expand. Uh, I mean, that does bring us back to the larger, one of the larger uh, threads of this conference. And that is essentially if you give a group of people the right to take your money over time, they're going to take more of it. And if they control as well what they have to do for that money, they're going to do less for it. And, and between the two, those two, those two natural engines, natural processes means that, that it, it eventually uh, government will expand and endanger the entire economy. In the interests of uh, increasing the lugubrious character of these remarks, uh, I just wanted to make one little comment. Uh, in New York State, uh, by, by the way, David, I was one of those stupid sociopaths who ran for office. <laughs> uh, but i just like to point out that in New York State, you have 325,000 city workers who work for, only, work for one party and work for uh, the interests, of course, of higher taxes. And you have 300,000 people at the state level to win a statewide office, you need two million votes. Each one of those people has at least two votes in the home. So when you're starting as a Democratic candidate in New York State, you're starting with roughly 1.2 million votes. And so your opponent starts with zero, you have 1.2 million. And then you wonder why taxes keep increasing and why New Yorkers are so imperiled by what is happening here with the financial situation. Uh, Tim had a quick comment. Can I have to be quick. 100% um, um, adults. Um, suffrage societies, mass democracies, are relatively new. Um, 
we didn't have them in Britain until I think the 1920s, certainly not 1918. 1918. Sorry? 1918. Well, the representation, but I think they're still, anyway, never mind, we're too late, late, later on. 1990, people like was the, yeah. Um, and the states had so it didn't have, have full uh, adult suffrage. So they're quite new societies. And um, what, what uh, as I said earlier on, that what seems to happen, and, and, and by the way, all the people, all the Victorians who, in Britain, for example, who worried about democracy said that there's this problem that, that basically the, the many poor will steal from the few rich. But actually, what seems to happen is there's a kind of equilibrium I was talking about earlier, where, where the state basically is all, that all of these states decided actually between around about 35% of GDP and 60%, and 60% they, they, they cut back. I mean, Europe, the size of government spending relative to GDP is lower in much of continental Europe now than it was 10 years ago. Sweden is a lot lower. So um, there's a sort of, um, the other check is these tax havens. And um, all I'd say is, is they are very unsatisfactory, but they don't, Ultimately, the state doesn't explode without limit. It's not, not a very oh, there's, there's a, There, but, there uh, is a, inevitably a check on it because eventually you have all cart and no horse. Yeah. Right? So yeah. There, there is a, a natural limit. But I think that government naturally expands to that limit. And, and so do the founders think that. The idea that the tax haven, uh, yes, they, they exist, but why should you have to do that? Alan Keyes, not a man I agree with on a lot of things, but I saw him campaigning in New Hampshire. And he, he used to, when someone asked him a question about uh, taxes, he had a very good line. He'd say, uh, if the tax rate is 20%, how much of your income does the government control? And the, the guy would say, well, 20%. He'd say, no, they control 100% because you have to justify the part you keep. And the minute you're saying, oh, okay, I can keep a bit more if I shuffle it off to the Turks and Caicos Islands for a few years and it, and it lies low until it's safe to come back, then you're playing, you're playing along with that game. Every, uh, everybody here who has a good, who, has, who, who does what Lionel does and who has a, has a good year, from kind of September onwards, your accountant is telling you, oh, no, no, you got another royalty check. You've got to shovel it out somewhere. You got to, I, the, the last three months, you're not making any rational economic decisions to grow your business. Uh, you're, you're, you're essentially en engaging. Uh, so you get no pleasure from making a lot of money and spending it. It's not like you're blowing it on coke and hookers or whatever. You're having to construct elaborate schemes uh, to come up with a figure uh, that will get you past a particular uh, hurdle that your accountant adv has advised you to aim for. That is, a, that is, Lionel is absolutely right. That's not being free. Well, yes, it's, it is. A, it is a, a liberty issue, and I guess that's this is what I'm trying to testify to this afternoon, is that uh, my mind. Has been has been colonized and tyrannized as well as my my time and my income, and that's probably what I resent more than any single thing. And uh, because what happens when you get a little more money? And this has to do with the tax havens and everything. Is that you know you have to scramble to figure out how to keep some of it, right? And that means uh, you know worrying about this fritter of receipts and thinking about the way you spend money in a very warped way. 
and, and you know, oh, this is tax deductible, so it's not really costing me what it really costs. Well, yes, it is. I mean, it's it it it, it is a, a a way of having the government in your head all day, yeah. and it's horrible, and I resent it. And that, honestly, that's why I'm saying back when I was making very little money, I was happier because the government just wasn't in my head. I think, I think and that's, I, that's a real loss. I think that's an insight that. Uh, has not often been expressed because you were saying that and I was thinking to myself this year I don't have any royalty payments for forthcoming book and I'm sort of saying Phew. you know because because I, I I've had this sense that I'm losing money when I'm making money yes and, and, and I have never heard anybody really talk about the phenomenon that that you mentioned but a lot of people in the room I think are saying damn right well this is a very emotional subject and, and what one of the things that I find shocking about it is that nobody talks about it people are very uh, tight-lipped about their tax situations and it's partly because we live in this climate of fear everybody is terrified of their tax authority whether that's uh, uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs or the IRS and I actually had a little pause before I wrote this speech, and I was a little worried about, hmm, you know, is what it if it gets out? Yeah. Because you don't want your tax details well, out there. It's frightening. You know, what if it gets the attention of the wrong people? I wrote an yeah. article on taxes, uh, the one in the Wall Street Journal, and I had exactly the same feeling. Do yeah. I really want to raise my head above the parapet at all. Well, on this. Just, one quick comment from Tim, and then we'll have to. Just, just to pick up on what Mark was saying, I loathe and detest taxes, and uh, I'm not at all in favor of what we have. And kind of just in terms of how much these taxes redistribute, in Britain there's an article published every year that the state redistributes around about 11 or 12 percent of GDP. That's all. The rest of it is sort of. We're paying taxes to get it back, or they do things for us we don't actually want them to do for us, and so on. I, I, I hate, I loathe and detest taxes, for God's sake. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. After today, I think we should have, we all know even more reasons for why we should be frightened. But anyway, uh, thank, thank, I'd like to thank all, all the speakers and thank the panel. <laughs>